As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head. That is Christ. From Him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here today. And uh, as has been mentioned already, if you're a guest, we are particularly glad you're with us. Let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne, and I'm part of the pastoral team, and I'm very glad that you're with us. We're going to spend some time looking at Ephesians chapter 4 today. I'd invite you to take your Bible. It's about this far through, like almost towards the end. Maybe you have it on a smartphone or a tablet. That's cool. If not, there's also a Bible in the pew rack in front of you, all right? While you're turning to Ephesians 4, I mentioned to you a few minutes ago that we are going to see how well you do musically with clapping. Some of you are going to be challenged in this a little bit, because we're going to start fairly easily, but after that it's going to get a little more difficult. You may notice we have Jeff and Jeff up here who are going to keep us on track with this. So what we're going to do is we're going to start first by letting them kind of just kind of unwind a little bit if you know what I mean. And so the Bible says to make a joyful noise to the Lord. Some of you do that when you sing, don't you? Yes, you say, I make a noise. Well, no, we're very glad you sing. But beyond that, also scripture says to make a, make a, use all kinds of instruments, including cymbals and tambourines, and you could add drums if you wanted and so forth. So what we're going to do is we're going to let them kind of get, get a, well, we'll hear what they've got to say as they worship God. And then once they get a pattern going, we're going to start to see if you can clap on one and three, then two and four. And then we'll go a little bit more deeper after that, okay? So we go one and three, two and four. Well, in music, go one, two, three, four, or one and two and three and four and. We'll, I'll lead you, okay? Take it away, guys.
we thank these guys for the work they do for us each and every week. Okay, so can you feel the beat? Here it is. A one, two, three, four. We want you to clap on one and three, okay? A one, two, three, four. One, two. Now, if you grew, if you grew up in country music, this is where you clapped, okay? If you grew up in rock and roll, you didn't clap here. You clapped on two and four. So one, two, three, four. One, two. Some of you already given up, right? Can you go back to one and three? Two, three, four, one, two, three, four, one. Okay, so we'll take a break there. These guys are gonna keep going. We're gonna look more difficult now. So it's three, four, one, and two, and three, and four. And we're gonna clap on the end of two and the end of four. Two, three, four, one, and two, and three, and four, and one, and two, and three, and four, one, and two, and three, and four. You know what, guys? This group did pretty good. Congratulations. I tell you, you did very, very well. All right. Thanks, guys. You're going, what was the point of all of that? <laughs> well, Bible says to clap hands before the Lord. We did that. That's pretty cool. Also, the passage of Scripture we're about to read talks about how a congregation is supposed to work together in sync and in rhythm together. Now, for some of you go, man, I have no idea how to... I have no idea what just happened in the last minute and a half. This was totally outside your world. I get that. But apart from whether or not you can clap and beat with drums, the Bible does say very clearly that a congregation that works well together is working rhythmically in syncopation together, if you will. And we're going to see what we can see, how we can see that in Scripture today from Ephesians chapter 4. Here's why we're looking at Ephesians 4 throughout the month of August. I want to be certain before we get to the fall and all the stuff and the people who come our way that the congregation is on the same page, that we all know who we are, what we identify as First Christian Church's core values and how that's going to play out for us. And may I remind you, we have four core values around here. First is we respond to God's Word. We encounter, God's, we encounter the Holy Spirit. We embrace change. And then finally, what we're going to look at today we, um, we build community. And so with that, then, I'd invite you to read Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. Look for indications about community life uh, within the church here as we read together. Paul, the apostle, is writing from prison to a specific congregation in Ephesus, and he says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Then will you read verses 4 through 6 with me out loud? There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And then let me continue on for you in verse 11. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers gave those people, people with that gifts, to the body of Christ to do what? To equip, to equip his people for works of service. I'm a pastor. My job is to equip these, this people here for works of service, with the result being that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then if we do that, 
We will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. But instead of that, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, all the muscles doing their work, that body grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Where do you find we build community in the middle of that passage? It's a core value. We say that we build community. And when we say that as part of our core value, um, I want to say that what we are doing is, what are we doing as a congregation to make sure that our rhythms and that our tasks and our ministries match each one another, and our lives are in sync with one another? That business of we build community is different, though, than what's outside the walls. Now, we focus a lot of time and energy and people resources. We focus a lot of finances on the larger community. Our mission to the community forms one of the most important roles and functions of our congregation. We do that because the mission of this church is that we will, um, we want to develop the fully devoted followers of Jesus Christ by growing and serving together. Bottom line, it's our mission to make certain that we see people, we discover people who don't know Jesus, invite them into a relationship with him. The unchurched, invite them into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and that's our mission. It involves and circles around evangelism at its very center. And that is our mission. But when we say our, one of our core values is that we build community, these are the values that we hold on to while we accomplish the mission. And I remember when we first put these values together many years ago now, more than a decade ago when we identified these, it was said, we said, we will build community here in the body of Christ so that this body of, the Christ, this body of Christ can impact the community out there. What we accomplish out there is based on what community we do here. How are we doing life together? We want to reach those people, but we won't reach that community until this community right here is working well together. And in a nutshell, Ephesians 4, as we've been looking at it over the last few weeks, it is the, it's, it's the story of life together and unity within a congregation. We've been looking at how this passage of Scripture and this business of working together and looking at God's Word and responding to the Holy Spirit, accepting and embracing change, we've looked at how this, this business of doing it together comes along until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Ephesians 4, in other words, expects that we will be people men and women, young people, kids, that as we know Jesus Christ and as we go along in that walk with him, that we will grow, that we will change, that we will, well, Ephesians 4 expects us to have this changing metamorphism, if you will, from pagan to established Christian. And within the context of Scripture, and particularly Ephesians 4, it takes place within community. That is a very, very biblical concept. In fact, there's nothing within Scripture that calls anyone to a hermit life of spirituality. The exact opposite is expressed in Scripture. You you might be called. It's fair to say that if you walk with Christ for a period of time, there may be days when you're called to periods of solitude, where you go off by yourself and you spend some hours, maybe a few days with God, and say, I want to interact with God without any distractions. But I would tell you, friend, if you're a picture 
of the best kind of spirituality is that of a, a monk living in the caves in the Sinai Peninsula all alone. That is not the right way in which Christian spirituality is best expressed. Christian spirituality is best expressed within the concept and within the understanding of a community of believers working and living and struggling and growing and learning and serving together. There's nothing within Scripture that says you do spirituality by yourself. I mean, just look at how it is at the early part of Scripture. You've got God making the Garden of Eden, right? And um, Adam is put within the Garden of Eden, and he's got everything he would ever need. He's got, he's got food, he's got water, he's got comfort. He gets to walk with God in the evenings. He gets to talk to God. As a matter of fact, we think he even talked to the animals, perhaps, because he, at one point before the fall, he talks to the snake, right? And the snake answers back, and so... I don't know if he was the original Dr. Doolittle or not, but nonetheless, there's, don't go home and make a big theology out of it, but you have some sense that maybe the animals and the humans could interact in ways that we don't today. I don't know. But God's looking down at this lush, perfect place. And you know what God's observation about it was after he made it all? He looks down, and what does God say? Uh, it's not good for him to be by himself. And so with that... Adam is set within a relationship, a family, a community. And within the context of Scripture, that community flourishes best when it's growing and changing and developing, saying, how can we move out? How can we grow? How can we be different than we are today? That's always it is, the way it is within Scripture. Any sense of isolation is not the way the Bible calls you to live your life as a follower of Jesus Christ. I was reminded of that this week. When I came across a story about the most isolated people in the world, perhaps you're familiar with them. They live on the North Sentinel Island. Uh, the North Sentinel Island is a, a small island off the coast of India. It's about the size of Manhattan. Anthropologists suspect, they don't know for sure, that between 50 and 400 people live on that island. They are considered to be Neolithic, namely that they are still set within the Stone Age. And there's been very, very little contact with them for, well, if not centuries, perhaps millennia. In 1967, the Indian government said, we need to see if we can reach out to these Sentinelese and see if we can learn a little bit about them. And so, aware that they might be a little, you know, cautious, they started giving gifts. So they would place coconuts. Now, if you want to kind of get to know me, giving me a coconut's not going to really help, but perhaps in that culture it did, and so they, they started leaving coconuts on the beach. They didn't get much response. 19, that was in 67. Seven years later, 1974, an, an, an Indian anthropologist with a film crew said, I'm going to make inroads with these people, and we're going to give them gifts beyond coconuts, and then we're going to film how things go. So they started leaving things on the beach for the Sentinelese people, like, uh, well, they gave them a pig. They gave them pots and pans. They gave them um, candy and toys for the children. Now, nothing gets to anyone's heart better than candy and ham, if you ask me, but nonetheless. So you'd think, okay, so you're thinking, okay, the Sentinelese are going to be open to this. So the anthropologist and his film crew come up on the beach, and the first thing that happens is the director of the film crew gets an arrow shot through his thigh. They back off. And with that, the government said no one else is going there. In the, 19, in the 1990s, they said, those people are off limits from this point on. We don't know how many live there, but if we go onto that island, we will introduce Western and modern diseases that they are not able to ma 
maintain or ma and able to manage and we will kill them. Now, I, I get that. The Centennialese are certainly free to maintain their own culture, but to be cut off from others? I understand India's position, but can I tell you, friend, that sort of isolationism is not what God intended for humanity. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ here today, you are to be growing, changing, developing, and you do it within the context of relationships. Ephesians 4 puts it this way, we are joined and held together by every supporting ligament, growing and building each other up in love as each part does its work. And if we do that, can I remind you, there is an end goal. It's found in verse 13. We're to keep working together until we are all moving rhythmically and easily with, it, with each other. Efficient and graceful in response to God's Son. Fully mature adults, fully developed within and without, fully alive like Christ. That's where that business of clapping together and being in rhythm together comes together. The learning of, if you will, to... Um, Know how to clap as a congregation at the right moment. I'm not talking about particularly putting your hands together, but as a congregation in the tasks in front of us, in the responsibilities in front of us, how to be people who work together on the right cue, on the right beat. Joel Stein, who was a writer for Time Magazine, had the front page article on Time Magazine this week about this whole matter about community life. He was writing about trolls. Now, when I think of trolls, I think of little dolls like this with pink hair, right? <laughs> Apparently, I learned this this week, trolls are no, that is no longer what a troll is. I suppose those dolls are still called trolls, but now there are trolls on the internet. Did you know this? Trolls are defined as not cute little dolls, but real people. One of the downsides to a fully connected internet culture, trolls are those within the internet who use an anonymous profile to harass and humiliate others. And they don't do it in community. They're lone rangers out on the internet with an anonymous profile harassing and, if you will, stalking other people. They're called trolls. I learned that this week. Psychologists have been looking at this business and these people called trolls. They call this online disinhibition effect, this, this willingness to step away from community in which factors like anonymity and invisibility and a lack of authority and not communicating in real time. Stein has identified it this way. He said, as psychologists are looking at this, what they are learning is that this trolling is stripping away the more society has spent millennia building. I find this fascinating. Because here's, if you will, the culture outside the church saying, it's not healthy to not be in community. It's not healthy to be, live as a lone ranger. I love the fact that here the Bible has been saying it for a long time. You should be in community back from the day one of, garden, of the Garden of Eden, if you will. And now we're finally catching on as humans and saying, it's not good for us to be alone. Aloneness is life for trolls, not for humans. Because when you live in community, your life gets better. When the people of God here at First Christian Church do life together, our life gets better. I, there are some benefits, if you will. This business of being involved in a, biblical, in a biblical relationship with one another, one of the benefits is found in verse 15, speaking the truth in love. We will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. What is that business of speaking the truth in love? What's going on there? 
I mean, if, if we're doing life together and we're supposed to speak the truth in love and we all grow out of that, what does that mean? Well, when community works correctly, there's mutual trust and mutual account- accountability. There's encouragement in, you know, you're really doing this really well. There's an encouragement in excellence, and there's correction when something isn't measuring up. I've had the not measuring up conversation with people. They've t- come to me and said, Wayne, this isn't going so well, you know, in your life. Can we chat about that? I, I recall um, a very specific time. Oh, it's more than 30 years ago. Now, back in 1979, I, it was a big deal to me. It really was. And I remember the day. Uh, many of you know that I spent my early 20s uh, on the road as a musician. As a matter of fact, I turned tw- uh, both 20 and 21 in the Soviet Union. 78, 79, a long story. I don't need to get into it all here. But so I spent two and a half years on the road. Less than I got married, spent another two and a half years on the road. You're wondering which one is Wayne, right? I can see some of you looking. <laughs> Any guesses? The guy in the hat. Yeah, that's me. All right, all right. Okay. Oh, yeah, that's the guy. There he is right there. He looks way younger up there, doesn't he? Yeah, that's right. But here's an observation about... So here's how our life was, if you will, and an observation about that. We performed six nights a week. Then you had a day off. And we did that for six weeks, and then you had a week off. And we did that for 11 months, and then you had a month off. And I did that for five years. So when you spend that amount of time every day on a bus with somebody traveling 100 miles or 200 miles or sometimes 600 miles, depending on where the next concert was, you get to know those people extremely well. You can't have an argument and say, I'm out of here. The I'm out of here is going down the road at 60 miles an hour. It's not a good idea. Okay? So as the group spends time together, they grow tighter and tighter musically and also relationally. It's interesting, we would say, okay, we're going we're gonna to introduce a new repertoire, and so we'd rehearse for a few weeks on new songs, and then we'd bring those songs into the, into the performances. And for the first few nights of those performances, you're invariably reading music if you're a flautist. Or for me as a keyboard player, I'd be watching, I'd be playing, or when I played trombone, I'd have all those charts in front of me. But after a few nights, you're kinda, you know the charts, you've rehearsed them, and so you don't need music anymore. Anybody who's playing the band knows that. Except I have to tell you, there was one song we had that was first introduced when I arrived in the band in February of 1978. And I could not, could not do it well. It involved this big, you know, lot, lots of music, and, and, and the song goes, builds to this big crescendo, and then there's this big pause, and everything goes silent, and there's supposed to be a 16-bar piano solo. And every night I fouled up that 16-bar piano solo. 18 months in, I'm still fouling it up. I have 18 months, I'm still carrying the music on stage. And I'm thinking nobody's noticing at this point. I mean, but one day, Tom Stewart, trumpet player, comes to me and he's quite perturbed. And he says, Wayne, night after night after night, you foul up those 16 bars. Why are you doing that? Here's the truth, Wayne. If you were really the musician you wanted to be, you'd be rehearsing that 16 bars every chance you had. But I never hear you working on it. You've settled for second best, and that's not the way we do things in this group. He was right. I'd simply assumed that I could never play it correctly, and consequently I wasn't practicing it. And I'd carry that music on a, on, on a stage each night and sit it up on the piano or the keyboard and hope nobody noticed. I, I wonder... 
Retrospect. 35, well, more than 35 years later, 37 years later, I wonder how long Tom agonized over that conversation before he had it, knowing he was going to, frankly, challenge one of his friends and say, you're just not cutting it, Wayne. You're not cutting it. I wonder how long did he lay awake at night, worried about it? But within the context of community, it worked. Oh, at first, I chafed a bit. I, frankly, I was probably a little bit angry, as I remember. I remember going, how dare he say that to me? But soon the how dare he turned to, well, I'll show him. And I started to work on that 16 bars every chance I got. And within a few days, I had it in my, under my belt. Never had to think anything of it. Until about five years ago. Irony of ironies. Long story short, we were asked to reconvene the group and do a reunion concert in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Long story short, we were going to do this concert, and the Tulsa Philharmonic was going to back us up. A big deal, 45, 50 musicians, wonderful, incredible musicians, and they chose me to be the piano player for the event. And, okay, I can manage that, that's all right. And they're going to broadcast it, it's going to, they, they, they taped the show. It was 3,000 people sitting in the audience. And after I got to town, they gave us the music, you know, because we hadn't played it in a lot of years. And you know what piece they gave me? <laughs> so I remember, singers are singing, the violins are just soaring in this big crescendo, blank pause. And I'm over on the piano. <laughs> I'm over here. I'm in the dark. Can we have a little light? Just like that. That's what happened in Tulsa because the director of the show had the cue, cue sheet and he knew that I was about to have this solo. And I see this guy with a big camera on his shoulder coming towards me and he's, he's, he's kneeling down on the stage and he's right about here and I'm sitting at the piano and everything has gone dead quiet and they're waiting for me to play my 16 bars. I saw the red light come on. Did I panic? You bet I panicked. <laughs> But here it went. And it went on from there. That's it simply. I won't get into all of it today, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> Nonetheless, here's my point. When community works correctly, like it did in that situation in 1979, it brings correction, it brings our life to better life, it brings who we are to better life approaches, better behavior to greater possibilities, and frankly, Tom Stewart made that work for me. It's a lesson I've never forgotten. We don't do things like that around here. We expect better behavior, we expect better responses. There are people in the life of this church who continue to work community out in my life for me today in the same way. Why is that? Because we say one of our core values is that we build community. We dig into relationships. We work with each other. We, we want to see people encouraged. We want to see people challenged. So with all of that as an understanding, can I give you, if I will, five quick observations how you can create a better community for the people of this church and for, the, for your own personal life, all right? Five very quickly. If you're going to write them down, you have to write fast, okay? First of all, first place where you can create a better community is you do it if you create pl places of relationships. Community only works within the context of relationships, not in the cave in the Sinai Peninsula. 
Get to know other Christ followers within the church. Join a small group. As a matter of fact, I'm going to give a whole lot of, be pushing a lot of stuff at you today that you find in your program. Beginning after Labor Day, there are going to be a, probably hundreds of people engaged in small groups. You could be one of them, all right? You could do that. You could join a Sunday school class. You could join a class that starts on Wednesday nights in October. You can find ways in which you could step into, hey, I, I want to be part of... Um, I want to be part of someone else's life and have them be part of my life. And we'll put you in a group and you may not like any of them. We'll find you a new group, okay? Well, well you'll figure it out. But, but staying where you are now is not working, is it? You say, I'm all alone. Well, let's see if we can fix that for you, okay? Secondly, create places of service. I always marvel at the way in which community and relationships grow when people serve together. Can I give you some ways in which you could um, serve in the next few days? First of all, our softball team is in the final four championship series. Look at that, yes. Tomorrow night, if they win the first game, they go on to play for the championship. I would suggest, since you practice clapping here, you could go to Rotary Park at six o'clock tomorrow night and clap there and cheer them on. How's that, all right? Congratulations to the softball team, and you could serve them by going there. Or, if you don't wanna do that, also tomorrow night, we have the worship arts team meeting is gathering here. And we're just saying, come and be part of the worship arts team. And they're going to do some studies. They're going to, I'm going to have a chat with you. And they're going to break up into small into groups and ways in which you, you, could, you could, for example, learn to sing, join the choir. Or if you play an instrument, join the band. If you don't play very well, come tell us. We'll show you how to play better. Promise, all right? Maybe, maybe you go, I'm not musical, but I should like to be on the worship arts team. Well, do you know, there's a whole group of people who operate the computers and the cameras that facilitate the worship, so much of our worship and ministry these days. Do you know that right now, in the back of the room right there, and in the East Auditorium as well, there's a team of people that make what happens in the room possible. But beyond that, there's another team that is unseen, and you may not know about it. There's a whole video suite in the back of the balcony, and the room's back there. And there they are back there. We took a picture of them last night in the middle of the service. You maybe you'd, Can you thank them for making that possible? And there are four people up there in every service. So it takes about 12 people a weekend if you're going to work all four services. It's, to, to do a service takes about 12 people to run the cameras and everything that make our worship service move along. Maybe you'd like to be part of that. Particularly if you're into, if you like um, video games, all the cameras and everything are run by these little things that look like video games. I, they'll show you how to do it. You can learn a lot, and I would invite you to do that, okay? If you want to know about more about that, come tomorrow night and uh, be part of the Worship Arts Night if you're not at the softball game, all right? Or here's another thing. Serve by joining our Club 305 uh, volunteer team. Uh, this is the group of people that for more than a decade now we've been involved in ministry at Parsons School. That's about to start up. We need people who are going to be tutors. We need people who would consider helping out in the kitchen. We need bus drivers. If you don't know how to drive a bus, but you'd like to learn, we'll teach you. We'll teach you. Okay? We need people who are going to mentor the parents of the kids from Parsons. I'd suggest that you could visit with Pastor BJ. Today, he'll be out in the lobby at the table looking for some uh, volunteer people who would participate in Club 305. Uh, maybe you could... Here's another way. You have in, your, in the pew today this little thing that says 11 a.m. What if you said to a bunch of people that you know or you don't know and say, hey, let's serve by, we'll be part of the team that goes over to the 11 o'clock East Auditorium service because we're going to need about 120 people to do that. You say, we'll make a commitment to that. If that's you, fill that out. Get it back to the Welcome Center today. My point being, there are, 
there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of ways in which you can serve in this community. We, have, um, we know that we have more than 1,100 service opportunities throughout a year. We have 700 people fill in those last year. You could make it 701. I'd invite you to do that, okay? So, create places of relationship, places of server, service, places of adventure. Always marvel at um, what happens when we hear people coming back from missiony, uh, mission trips, whether they're in the country or out of the country. They come back with all these wonderful stories of who they've ministered to, but they also come back with these incredible stories of adventure just amongst themselves. There was, a, there was an adventure that took place up in Michigan last Sunday that I wish we'd been part of. I think it would have been so much fun. It would have been an adventure. Maybe you're familiar with it. It's called the Port Huron um, um, St. Clair float. What they do is they put a bunch of people in, in rubber rafts and in um, inner tubes, and they float down the river, and they float between all those boats. It's about 2,500 people every year do it. But last year, or last Sunday, this year, something unusual happened. The problem is the, 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 the American-Canadian border runs right through the middle there. And this past Sunday, a, uh, a wind blew up 35 miles an hour. The Canadians have always said, enjoy yourselves, don't come to Canada. <laughs> but here's what happened. The wind blew 35 miles an hour and blew, catch this 1,500 people could not stay on course, and they all landed on the beach in Canada. 1,500 people in their rubber rafts going like this. <laughs> NBC put it this way. Canada politely but firmly escorts 1,500 illegal rafters back to the U.S., do you think? You know what they did? They rented a bunch of charter buses and said, you're going on the bus, you're going home. Now, nobody got hurt. And can I be honest and say, I wish we'd had about 40 of us up there doing that, just to create the adventure, just so, that, just so we'd have fun and our relationships and our community would grow. Can you imagine when we'd be 80 years of age or 85 or 95 or when our kids are that age and they go, remember mom and dad when they tell us the story of how they blew into Canada? <laughs> Think about that. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I wish we'd done it. I do. Because what? Why? we would have created community life in a powerful way. You can create some community life this afternoon in an adventure. We got family fun night tonight. Huh. Go in the bounce house with the five-year-olds. There's an adventure. <laughs> Seriously, you want to create community? There's going to be community in that bounce house. There's an adventure. There's some stories, all right? So create places of relationship, create places of service, adventure, create places of honesty. This is where the trust of relationships come into play. It's where the trumpet player of your band says, hey, you're not living at your best potential. It's where we experience how the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, the whole body causes it to grow and build itself up in love as each part does its work. That's what Ephesians tell us. Because in the midst of that, we also then create places of support. Places of prayer and care and ongoing development. I, I see it in a lot of places around the life of the church where small groups or Sunday school classes or... We have two ladies. I call them the holy rollers. The holy rollers. They, 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 they work in Mosaic Cafe about once every six weeks and they get plastic spoons, knives and forks and a napkin and they roll them together and they put them in the big buckets and those big buckets of all that stuff rolled together, those holy rollers go down to Good Sam Inn. Good Samaritan to the, so that people down there can have utensils to use. 
Those two ladies, for that two or three hours every six weeks, you should hear the conversation, the community life that's taking place between those two ladies as they're, they're just doing this. Holy rollers. Hmm. It's, that, it's, it's what you see, that sort of community life of caring and supporting and praying. It's what you see in what I call on Saturday nights the back pew crew. There's a bunch of people. They come usually about 25 minutes before the service starts. They sit together and they catch up with each other's lives. They're varying in ages and varying life stories and varying lengths of how time they've been in the life of our church. But you should hear the community that takes place as they sit in those back pews and they tell each other what's going on and they pray for one another and they care. I always ask them, why don't you sit closer to the front? And they say, well, we don't sing so well. We'd run everybody off. I point out that if you're sitting at the back and you're singing, you're singing into everybody's ears. It'd be better if you did sit at the front so they wouldn't hear you, but they don't seem to listen to that. See, here's what I've learned. I can approach the back pew crew and I can enter into their conversations and their discussions. And if I interrupt, that's fine. But I also know it's me interrupting a very special moment in their lives that takes place each and every week. You know what it is? It's those people doing community. And I know this. It is First Christian Church at its finest moment. Let's pray. God, we would choose to do community life together. We would choose, God, to um, do it in places of relationship, places of service, places of adventure, honesty, and care and support. Hmm. Help us to not settle for second best in our lives but rather be people who encourage one another, who challenge one another, for the greater good of this community, yes, but so that then we will reach into the community at large, outside the walls. Work that within us, we pray in Christ's name.